Welcome to Black Diplomats, your podcast on all things international from a black perspective. I'm your host, Terrell Jermaine Starr. Today, we're going to talk about how the U.S. military has long been used to advance American imperialism and how the progressive political movement is challenging Washington to rethink how America's armed forces should be used. Helping me to break down all of this are Asher Castleberry and Richard Brookshire III, two veterans from the organization Black Veterans Project that seeks to draw on existing data and foster new research to engage the public, elected officials, and military stakeholders around the role race continues to play across the nation's military landscape. Asha is a professor, a military advisor, and officer in the U.S. Armed Reserve. She currently serves on the Board of Advisors of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security and is a 2018 recipient of the Robert Myers Carnegie Council of Ethics and International Affairs Fellows Fund researching populism in the defense community, which is something we definitely going to talk about. And also, she recently ran for Congress this year out of New York, and we'll be talking a lot about that as well. And Richard is our Army veteran, a former non-commissioned officer and infantry combat medic. And he currently serves as the acting director of communications at Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. So y'all, welcome to Black Diplomats. Thank you. Thanks for having okay. us. I just want to ask y'all, like, just I just want to get a pulse from the both of y'all of what do y'all think about this current political landscape as two veterans? You know, you know, we have this defund the police movement, you know, and unfortunately we have this black people are being killed around the country and we have all this language about, you know, defense of American values and everything. I just want to get how you both are feeling in general. And so uh, let's, you know, let's start with you, Asher. Thanks so much for having me. Um, wow. How do I feel? Um, I mean, you can go on and on for this, but I'm not going to, you know, kill all the oxygen in this uh, conversation, but um, we right now are dealing with a multi-layer uh, crisis where you're dealing with the coronavirus in terms of the uh, pandemic, as well as you're dealing with uh, us combating systemic racism. And, we're, and many of us are being very woke about it, supporting a lot of Black Lives Matters rallies. And you're also dealing with an economic um, problem too as well. So many businesses ha are closing down. The unemployment rate are in double digits. Uh, and, you know, just Lord and Taylor, yes, it just closed out. Uh, you know, it's been open for 196 years. So there's a lot going on in terms of that. Now, when you look at the issue involving um, defunding the police, uh, systemic racism, the protesting going on, evidently we're learning that racism um, is a national security threat. And it's going to be hard to address due to the fact that it's been ingrained in our system for over 400 years. And how right now in the 21st century, how can we, you know, address it? But with the leadership we have in the White House, that's going to be a, a big struggle. Uh, we're struggling already with it. Um, and as a national security expert, I would say that this needs to be not only framed as a national security threat, but we need to make sure we're allocating resources to address that issue within government. So going back to defunding the police, um, it is a valid uh, concern, but we have to also look at how effective is it as, as far as uh, defunding police. When we're saying that, are we looking at the fact that, hey, we have to, uh, you know, how's that support with amplifying, or excuse me, uh, supporting more having, um, excuse me, uh, 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 um, cams, right? Uh, we need more of that. 
is it a matter of changing the rules through engagement as a as a you know a service member, especially um, you know deployed in places like Iraq and other places. We learned that, especially under uh, General Petraeus, that sometimes doesn't doesn't really take for defunding something. It's just a matter of change of behavior. So when we were making those mistakes in Iraq, when we were doing a lot of counterattacks, right? We were just going into people's uh, houses and just breaking through and and demanding questions. I mean, answers about Osama bin Laden or whatever. Uh, it didn't work. So then we went from counterattacks to counterinsurgency. So I think when when it comes to the police here, it's a matter of changing the rules of engagement. They need more cultural awareness. They need money in terms of mental health. I mean, it, it, there's a lot in terms of rules of engagement. I think we're running away from that discussion. So uh, there's a lot that we can unfold here, but you know, Richard, you can go. That's fine. I think uh, what, what'll make this uh, conversation interesting is that Asha and I don't often agree on everything. So uh, we have two varied perspectives, which I think is always, um, it makes for a really uh, engaging conversation. So I think defunding is actually the answer. Um, I think even when we talk about the military, the inflated nature of the budget of the military, I think has gotten so, we have such uh, an exacerbated military industrial complex that I think this country really has to contend with. And I do think that, you know, for all of Trump's failings, he has spoken at least about the need to at least kind of minimize our presence overseas, our, our engagement with specific conflicts. But that also is countered by the fact that he's wanting to invest more in the military. So I don't quite understand how those two things compute. Um, but, you know, relative to defunding police, um, if, for me, it's, it's a necessity only. Be, and I'm not saying defunding the police in its entirety, right? But we have to understand the policing has become its own industrial complex. Um, and the way in which we engage uh, communities around policing ha it has economic implications, right? It's motivated by an out economic outcome. That's why it's an extension of slavery to have the prison industrial complex that we have in this country. And it's directly tied to policing and how we carry out policing. Um, and certain components of com policing are, 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 are essentially there to strip wealth from communities, right? Um, when you think about the fact that there are some police departments that exist across this country who literally just pull drivers over so that they can, you know, line their city coffers, or they want to, I mean, a, a perfect example in New York City, and it's relative to parking, but my mom had a $2,000, $3,000 car. She lived in uh, Brooklyn for a year, and she paid two or $3,000 in tickets. So I'm just, you know, there are, that, that's not even the violent components of policing, right? Um, but the ways in which that affects uh, marginalized communities, specifically poor communities, I think is something that we need to discuss more openly and certainly um, diverting resources from an overinflated budget um, relative to policing and putting that in, in, in programming that allows for um, economic opportunity ultimately is the right answer. We're going to talk about the Black Veterans Project, but I want to talk to you about what you talk about your military service and what you did and also discuss how your military service shaped your view of the world and then going to the Black Veterans Project, which of which you are a co-founder? That's such a, I feel like it's a layered question and it's one I, I, I answer a lot. So I have like my, my story that I always kind of give um, because I think everything connects to itself. I think my experience in the military, everyone's individual experience in the military is somewhat different, right? Even though in the aggregate, you know, relative to race or what have you, um, there can be certain uh, experiences that are, are similar. Um, but for me, you know, I, I grew up in uh, a single parent household. My mom was a Haitian immigrant. She actually served in the army for three years. This is how she met my father. Um, um, my father served for 30 years. He's, you know, third generation military. Um, and he was, he was in the army. 
um, served from Vietnam all the way to the Gulf War and then, and then got out as a command sergeant major, and, um, which is the highest enlisted rank that you can have um, other than you know, sergeant major of the army. And he, um, but was relatively estranged after my parents divorced when I was about five years old. And so when I was 18, I went off to college at a, I always talk about this because it leads to other discussions, but I had um, a full ride to Morehouse and ended up losing said full ride to Morehouse, partly because I was first generation college student. I didn't have the, the adequate mentorship. I didn't know how to navigate the bureaucracy of, uh, of the collegiate experience in a lot of ways. And so um, I lost that scholarship. And then I moved back to Florida where I interned for the Obama campaign. It was 2008. And, you know, Obama's victory, just like for many, um, was transformative. You know, it broke this glass ceiling that I didn't even recognize was there at 18. Um, and I can't overstate how impactful it was to just even see the first Black president. And it made me deeply patriotic and also wanting to connect to an experience that my family had had, specifically my father, because he was absent. Um, and, uh, yeah, the Army just... it when I put it all together, specifically because I would get school, uh, schooling out of it as well, it just made sense. So um, another thing that, you know, happened, I guess, when I was getting recruited is they told me I wouldn't be able to get particular jobs because at a small level of debt from paying for housing at Morehouse, I had some student loans. They're like, well, you can't get a security clearance. So, you know, these are the list of jobs that you could probably qualify for that you don't need a security clearance for, which happens to black people all the time, right? They're either marginalized in the service-oriented roles in the military. They're not told about specific jobs that they may qualify for. They're not properly prepared for the ASVAB exam that, that allows you to get opportunity on the enlisted side and what have you, and it compounds on itself. Um, anyways, I, I, I ended up choosing a job where I felt like I could at least help people, so I became a combat medic. Uh, was with an infantry unit in, in, in uh, Western Germany, um, went to Afghanistan for a year, um, you know, and I was just a young gay black kid trying to make his way in the world, and suddenly I found myself at war uh, with a lot of other poor white kids. So it was, you know, an experience where you're just, you know, engaging with populations that you would otherwise not even have conversations with, right? And people were so starkly different from me, um, and which is, wasn't a bad thing necessarily, but that, didn't, that also came with its own prejudices, um, its own culture, cultures, because the military is long predicated and, 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 and bends and folds to the white heteronormative male gaze, right? Like that is that is, that when you think of a soldier, if you if you fall outside of those confines, you're often othered in the military um, and othered in American life. Um, but anyways, I ended up transitioning into the New York State National Guard. Um, I served there for three years while I was matriculating to policy school. Uh, that's how me and Asha know each other. And um, I founded the Black Veterans Project. So the project is really a, a multifaceted. So when I got out of the military, um, it was in 2016. It was like at the precipice of this political moment that we find ourselves in. I mean, I think for me, you know, up until that point, coming out of the Obama years and slowly being let down by Obama, or I mean, he's a human being, right? Like, you know, you, you, you deify somebody, they're always gonna let you down. Uh, but being young and like, you know, I was just kind of continuously like uh, disappointed, I think, with some of the outcomes, not only just for black people, but even just in, in, in the ways in which he, he continued forth with the, the, the wars in the, middle, in the Middle East, which having served at the lowest levels in them, you know, didn't have much utility. And we're even seeing now that it's not necessarily keeping the peace in that region. Um, if anything, it's, it's caused greater harm than good. Um, but anyways, when I, when I was transitioning out, I was kind of met with a lot of different 
situations. I think one being, there was a gentleman that I, and I always tell this kind of tip, but there was this gentleman that I served with. We served, we went to the same basic training camp. We were stationed on the same very small base in Germany, deployed together, though I don't know if I ever met him or not, but we were on this small base together for four years. And when I graduated from Columbia, um, I was reading the Subway newspaper one morning and saw a story about a white man who you know, traveled from Virginia to New York with the explicit intent of killing a black guy, ended up murdering a 70 some odd year old uh, man near Times Square. And I read it, he was from my base. And it, to me, it just, it was this, this moment where like all of my experiences came crashing to a head um, because then I started to contextualize what I had seen when I was um, in, in, um, specifically on active duty. Um, one of those things was a very deep interest in Nazism, a very kind of tied, um, a tied kind of interest in, the, um, in Hitler. I mean, partly because we were in Germany, but also there were young soldiers that would bring Mein Kampf to work and read it like it was like Shakespeare, you know what I mean? So ultimately, now I'm understanding what that kind of indoctrination can lead to, right? And then you also have this very conservative, conspiracy-driven kind of atmosphere in the military amongst the lower enlisted folk that sometimes can go up the chain of command as well. Um, and part of that was motivated by the deep racism and disdain for Barack Obama. But back to um, Black Veterans Project, having that experience, um, also I had a, a moment where I had a little bit of viral fame for, for a silly letter that I wrote my neighbor because he said he was going to call the cops on me. And I got met with months and barrages of, um, of, of hate uh, mail. And they had to put security at my job because white supremacist groups were trying to post my, post my work address and say that they were going to come lynch me and all this stuff for writing a letter. And all those experiences combined led me to like a really dark place in my life. I felt like I had an existential crisis. I no longer knew what, and then Trump got elected. So all that thing, all those things collectively made me like, I was like, what, what, what is this universe that I'm returning back from after eight years of service, you know? So um, ended up quitting my job. Like many vets that struggle, I, I moved away. I was relatively isolated, nearly ended up homeless if it wasn't for my mother who helped to kind of rehabilitate me. And during that time, um, shortly after a suicide attempt, unfortunately, that I, well, actually fortunately, because I, I survived it, but took me to a very dark place. And after that, I um, attended, because I was looking for, for work, I was just curious what the Department of Labor um, for the state was put, a program they were putting on for veterans specifically. So I went and I was just very surprised that the majority of the room was black. Half of the room looked like, you know, when they raised the hand about whether they were formerly incarcerated, half the room rose their hand. A significant portion was homeless. And so to me, that kind of got my wheels turning and understanding, um, you know, having just got, got out of a, a job that was focused on diversity and inclusion post, uh, post-military act. I, I kind of wanted to get a, a better sense of what diversity looked like um, and the ways in which the military managed the issues of diversity and also what uh, these continued racial disparities amongst black vets were. So I spent the better part of three months doing intense research, trying to read it. And it was just an avid reader trying to find all, all that I could get my hands on, really trying to understand um, how race still played a role in the military landscape and, and also relative to the veteran landscape. Um, and so I co-founded this organization and strictly almost at first to do research and advocacy, which was what we primarily do at this particular point. And I co-founded it with um, a colleague that I'd gone to Columbia with named Kyle Bibby, Marine, um, astounding young man, like brilliant mind, if people don't know who he is. Oh, he's dope. We gonna, we gonna have him on Black Diplomats eventually. Yeah, I know Kyle, he, he, he if you wanna know about 
like right wing militias and all this other stuff and about crazy white boys in the military. He he has stories. Yeah. <laughs> we we co-founded, we birthed this thing together. We've been building it out. He was the executive director for the first year and a half. And then um over the last six months I've I've become the ED. Um, and as we kind of move the organization forward, we're finalizing our 501c3, we've actually got our hands into a lot of really interesting work over the course of the last, uh, the last year, really. Because um, a, uh, a lot of what we've had to spend our efforts doing is relationship building. We're, we're two young kind of like vets, but also graduate school, you know, freshly out of graduate school to a lot of people. They're like, what could these young men possibly know and, you know, help us navigate this thing that we've been trying to navigate? Um, but I think we brought a new energy to the, to the space, um, you know, speaking about uh, VSOs in, in particular, there just hasn't been a concerted effort to focus on the issue of race um, by existing veteran organizations. Um, and if they have, they've largely failed in that endeavor. Um, and then existing black veteran organizations that have been around, you know, probably since the 1970s, post-Vietnam, um, many of them um, just I think mostly have been focused on service delivery. So they weren't doing um, work on the Hill. They weren't pushing for greater equity necessarily in the military. And if they did, it wasn't a concerted, really kind of well-researched, rounded effort um, that had a long-term kind of strategy to it. Um, and there's been kind of one-offs by different civil rights organizations focused on different elements of, of the military relative to race. So we wanted to kind of bring all that into one organization and kind of help lead the charge by way of research, advocacy, litigation, um, talking about race um, in the military and veteran space. And so I'm being a little long-winded, but I just want to say three things that we're doing more immediately. One of the things that we um, um, just did uh, last month is we, we helped to file an amicus with an organization called Protect Our Defenders. And um, that was specifically for, in support of a case, um, Gary Jackson versus the Secretary of the Navy, who a black vet that faced ardent discrimination, um, mostly through the 1980s and into the early 90s after he had served about 20 years um, in the Marine Corps. And he's suing basically asking that Title VII apply to the military. The Civil Rights Act and, um, does not apply to the military. And there's actually no federal statute that bars racial discrimination in the military. The military is a self-governing body. And so they've instituted their own mechanism of, of, of redress that have been largely inefficient at um, um, specifically um, fixing the issue of, of racial bias in the military. So one of the things that we're also pushing for in this year's NDAA is the release of a racial um, bias uh, survey data that the military has been collecting, the Department of Defense has been collecting since 2013, but they've never made that data public. They do a similar uh, survey around gender and they do a biannual release of that data. Um, and so we're pushing for the release, release of that as a first step. And then lastly, um, that's what we're doing you know, relative to the veteran landscape, um, the, the military landscape, but I think it's important to also not forget vets. Um, and so because of the story legacy of racism, you have vets dating all the way to World War II that are still alive and really Vietnam vets got really fucked over for lack of a better phrase. Um, and so we're really wanting to do work that benefits them. And so Yale Law School has just signed on to represent us, their legal clinic, um, essentially to help us look at racial disparities in VA disability claims. Um, because there's always been a very stark difference between the kinds of uh, disability claims that uh, black uh, vets are generally approved for relative to their white counterparts for generally the same types of injury. And that has compounding economic implications because if you don't have, say you get 40% for an injury, your white counterpart gets 100% for, that's thousands of dollars in lost um, income every month that compounds on itself over years that 
we look to as, a, as perhaps even if we're, if we're successful over the course of the next you know, four to five years of working on this issue, could be a pathway to some kind of reparations. Good, so good. So Asha, so tell us about yourself and what your role, you know, tell us about your military background and uh, kind of going to how the military has informed your view of the world. And then we'll also talk about um, your run for, for office, obviously. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, Richard, thank you so much for, you know, laying out what you what uh, Black uh, Veterans Project's working on because I was really, you know, motivated to join and support uh, for many reasons. One is because I'm a descendant of slaves. So, you know, um, my background goes all the way back to coming here. Oh, my heritage goes all the way back to 400 years. Uh, you know, Black veterans, uh, our service members have served in every single war since the American Revolution. Uh, so we also help build this country, especially places like the White House. So when it comes to reparations or restitution, the government owes us because we sacrifice our lives to help protect this country and help build it. Um, and that motivates me every day, move forward as a, uh, an American. And I will tell you this, um, what um, got me into the military is uh, just being a typical HBCU student at Hampton University. I uh, didn't have enough money uh, to attend Hampton. So I enrolled in the ROTC program. Um, I was gonna go enlisted. Um, I remember signing up in Yonkers, New York, uh, but I changed my mind and said, hey, I wanna go to school and also serve at the same time. So I decided to uh, pursue a scholarship uh, program there at the ROTC program. I did that for four years, um, was commissioned as a second lieutenant coming out of uh, Hampton University. And I, I value that because I don't think I hear too much in the news or on Twitter that uh, HBCUs get credit for bringing in a whole bunch of uh, black military officers. The focus is more on, oh, why is West Point not producing enough? It's like, yeah, but where, when do you ever give credit to the HBCUs that graduates uh, you know, commissioned so many black officers for so many years. And especially around my time, when I was commissioned, man, them, them, a lot of young people were coming back in body bags going into Dover Air Force Base because they were getting blown up in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, you know? So it was, it was definitely, uh, it was a struggle, especially at HBCUs to recruit students to join the ROTC program. And so they struggled for many years, but they, they actually did and they, they definitely outperformed West Point who did not, you know, uh, commission at enough all, uh, black officers and still like that to this day, you know? So um, after I uh, commissioned, um, I went into uh, the reserves, uh, National Guard Reserves, uh, spent some time in Central America, uh, also did some work um, um, out in, uh, with the State Department working at the Military Staff Committee when Ambassador Rice was there, uh, when she was an um, ambassador for, to the United Nations, uh, deployed. Uh, in 2012 uh, to Kuwait, worked on security cooperation. Uh, and then, um, so going back to uh, when I was deployed, worked on security cooperation. Um, another word saying we're helping to build our strategic alliances in the Middle East, uh, mainly at that time was with the Kuwaitis, the Jordanians, um, and other Gulf um, um, partners. And then my missions uh, uh, evidently changed when uh, ISIS broke into uh, Syria, I mean, excuse me, in Iraq coming from Syria. And then, so my mission changed to focus on Baghdad, working with the Iraqis to help uh, help get back their uh, country. 
And so I spent uh, about a year doing that, uh, helping to build a coalition, um, which is a combined joint task force, Operation Hair Resolve, as well as um, working with, you know, um, uh, counterterrorism uh, closely with the Iraqis and our coalition forces. Um, then came out of there, out of that, um, that crazy mission, uh, and then uh, went into academia and also, you know, pursued my national security lenses on how a lot of this works, especially um, coming from a black woman and kind of giving, a, you know, giving a perspective to people here on how this works. I think that, I think at the end of the day, it's invaluable. I was getting sick and tired of watching white men shape the conversation when it comes to our national security. So I did that in academia, on the media, and, and other um, um, avenues of approach in terms of promoting my perspective. And I'm um, also been, you know, some involved in some of the veterans' issues too, as well, uh, especially with a lot of veteran advocacy programs or, or groups. Um, and then finally, I decided to run for office. Why did I do that? It goes back to what I was saying to you. I'm a, a descendant of slaves. I believe that it is my God-given right, my democratic right, to exercise what I want to do in this country, especially when it comes to run to run for office. Um, I did that because I felt that one, I was not economically happy. I did not like the conditions, especially in uh, my district where uh, a lot of us here are struggling. It's too expensive to live here. It's the most expensive uh, district in the country because the taxes are too high. Um, I was not too pleased about how black people were living here. Many, uh, the, the typical thing that happens to many black people in this district is that- Tell us about your district. What district are you in, by the way? Congressional district. Um, 17 so that is parts of westchester county and rockland county and to let everybody know westchester county that is i'm not sure if it's the current residence but at one point in westchester that the uh former president and former secretary of state and senator hillary clinton um uh, was there you know bill and hillary clinton that's the you know that at one point that's their residence i don't know if it's their current residence now but definitely live there right 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 uh, and still here <laughs> Yeah, still here. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so I didn't like the economic conditions. I didn't like how black people were living here um, for, for many reasons. One, it was pretty typical that uh, the average black person could not keep up with the local economy. They wanted to buy property, but could not do it because they weren't getting paid enough. So many of them have moved to Yonkers and then eventually moved to Atlanta um, just so they can live well. Um, many of us don't really have a, a fancy network like a lot of rich people here do. Um, and then also when it comes to uh, the younger people who are trying to find another, you know, trying to get in, break through in their careers, the, the opportunities here are limited. Um, like, you know, re shopping at, you know, retail and the retail industry is well known here, but don't pay enough. I mean, just a lot of economic issues involving up here and it's just very upsetting. Um, and I, you know, I felt that, that, you know, and also going back to the student loan debt issue, huge problem here. Um, and, you know, that's why when I ran, I decided to say, hey, I want, I think we should cancel uh, student loan debt because there's no way a lot of us are going to pay it back. Uh, it's going to mess up our net worth. And how can we purchase homes, especially for the fact that in an expensive district like this, you know, to, in order to purchase home, you have to at least put down what a quarter million dollars. Who has that? You know, who has that? I will tell you, you know, being deployed for so long, yeah, I could accumulate a lot of that money, but that's not realistic for many people here. So another reason too why I decided to run was also for national security issues, very upset about what the Trump administration was doing in terms of our military and national security. 
um, our strategic alliances, um, you know, just watching how he was eroding a lot of our relationships. And one in my plan was to definitely try to implement more congressional oversight over the Trump administration. I think that was definitely needed. But I will tell you something that's very disturbing running with a foreign policy background. Most people don't care. They don't care uh, because they're not happy with their conditions. And some of it's not their fault. You know, they're not happy with their health care. They're not happy with, you know, they don't have enough money in their pocket. They're worried about getting, you know, purchasing food, making sure they get on the table. Like, that's more of a priority. So when you look at the conditions in this country and how people feel, you're starting to see where they're becoming less and less interested um, in uh, what's going on outside in the world. They, they're just not interested. Um, I, I, I told them several times, you know, when it comes to a federal position, you need to make sure that someone knows both domestic and foreign policy. And they have to know how it intersects when it comes to being a congressional member. Many of them did not understand and they did not care. I even used, not used, but gave the example of coronavirus. I said, that was a global, that is a global threat. That came out of, uh, you know, outside of our country, uh, some will say China, and then it eventually came into the United States, penetrated through our borders and hit us all to where now we have a death toll of over 180,000 um, people that have died from this. That's telling you that we have to pay attention to what's going on outside of the world, I mean, outside of our country. You know, we can no longer ignore what's going on. You know, we're more interconnected, even through, you know, looking at the Russia situation when it came to disinformation. How do we, how do we address that? How do we address that problem? But again, a lot of people just don't care about foreign policy, national security. Their priority is health care making sure they're economically happy, you know, and then even environmental policy, like supporting the Green New Deal, um, those issues to them are more of a priority. So, um, you know, it, the, it went through the race. It was definitely, uh, a, you know, I, I would say, some people say I joined late, I probably did, um, but it was tough. And why was it tough? Most of it is based on money. Uh, it's, it was the most undemocratic experience I ever had in my life. I thought, um, I was probably a little naive about it, but I thought maybe they would appreciate the wealth of experiences you're willing to offer. No, they, it's all about money, how much money you can raise. And that's why we need campaign finance reform because our, our elections should not be uh, determined based on how much money you raise, it should be based on character, policy, experiences. So let me just explain you real quick why it's all based on money. If you raise enough money, then you get a certain amount of endorsements. And if you get a certain amount of endorsements and you get those high profile individual endorsements, if you don't raise enough money, what happens is it starts to stack against you uh, to where it delegitimizes you versus legitimizes you as a candidate. They don't care if you travel, if, you know, you discovered something new or you're an inventor or went all the way to the moon and came back. If you don't have enough money, they're not going to support you. And this is more with the political operatives, right? But they're constantly building this narrative, right? That um, that that if you don't, if you have the money, we like you. If you don't have the money, go, bye. That's an interesting point. So I want to go into um, Trump's speech last night. So, <clears throat> I, <laughs> which I think you both will have some strong opinions about because he talked about the military and foreign policy in a lot of these instances. And I want to get both your takes on this. Joe Biden spent his entire career outsourcing their dreams and the dreams of American workers 
offshoring their jobs, opening their borders, and sending their sons and daughters to fight in endless foreign wars, wars that never ended. So here's the NPR fact check saying that the president has reduced the U.S. troop presence in the three countries where the American military has been most active, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. However, the conflicts have not been resolved and many in the U.S. national security establishment say that the U.S. should remain at least a limited presence, Should I'm sorry, should maintain at least a limited presence to prevent a resurgence of heavy fighting. So he spends all this. So Trump spends all this time saying, hey, we're going to rein it. We're going to bring our troops home, etc." But there's some miscalculations about how he's doing that. I just want to ask you what your thoughts are on this. I'll start with you, Richard. I'll say that um, I agree with what Trump is doing um, by way of pulling out um, troops from those regions. These are failed conflicts. Um, I don't necessarily think that America needs to be in those regions as significantly as they have been in the kinds of investments that they're making in those regions can be much better used um, in, in, on stateside relative to the issues that Asha was just speaking about. Um, and because for me, you know, 20 years of presence there and untold trillions of dollars uh, of spent, billions unaccounted for, by the way, um, there is no measurable difference. There, there's no maintaining of a democracy. If anything, you had a massive destabilization of an entire region. And now the, 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 the you know, foreign policy elite essentially is, is trying to justify um, the continued presence there. When the, 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 the fact is, 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, we went there, we went there for oil. We, we're self-producing at this particular point. So there, I don't think there's as much of a reason to need to, to mire ourselves in the politics uh, of that region to the extent that we're doing it. Do I think that we should have a limited presence there? Absolutely. Should we be in support um, of democratic governance in those regions? Absolutely. But deployed troops and you know a continued kind of uh, you know uh, a surge of, of troops there, I don't I don't think is necessarily productive. Man, um, I will say I agree with Trump kind of pulling back. Um, on, on military bases in, in, in places like Germany. Um, a lot of times these military bases have not necessarily served any kind of strategic purpose. Um, a lot of them, even the ones that I served on, um, really were just propping up the economies of local villages in, 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 the, in, you know, in rural Germany, which had some utility during the Cold War and does not for our country at the, at the present state, right? Yeah, I want to touch into that, Richard. That's a good point. So when we, you know, because my mother, both my mother and father served in the military and they both were based in Germany. And you think about it, and it's like at what point, like the way that I look at this, and I'm going to go back to you, uh, Esha, is uh, this is really about empire. Maintaining empire is expensive, okay? And that's the reason why there are not many empires, okay? You think about Rome, Rome was an empire that one of the reasons why I feel empires fall eventually is because it's maintaining empire and supremacy besides the the war aspect of it, it's expensive. It's okay. economic. I mean, that's like, what drove on the USSR was their, their, their quagmire in Afghanistan nearly bankrupted the country. And, you know, based on and their overinvestment in military culture 
also precluded them from being able to meet the social programs that they had promised. And that largely kind of at some point, you know, dis, uh, dissolved this uh, barely maintaining union that they had, um, which I don't think is something that can happen in the United States. I think we also, I also think we have a, a federal government that has gotten out of control and, you know, the state should be, you know, administer, I believe in social uh, welfare programs, but I believe a lot of it should be administered at the state level, right? And so if states fail, then, you know, th then, then there should be more conservative effort to, at, at, at the very least, you know, because the federal government is, is in charge of ensuring interstate commerce and providing mechanisms for people to move from state to state, right? Like that to me is a better social welfare tool than say, you know, growing our, our federal government to the point where it's now responsible for the maintenance of an entire kind of empire, essentially, that then necessitates the kinds of things that we need externally, right? Um, at least that's my yeah. opinion. I would love to hear what Asha thinks. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so so let's let's go back to you. What do you think about this? Um, oh wow. You could, you're gonna probably have to shut me up, right? <laughs> um, well, going going to the, the Germany piece, um, there is a valid argument that our force posture when you look across the world is still maintained based on post-Cold War. And should that does that go along or does that align with how the, the security environment looks right now, right? Do we need X amount of troops in Germany in order to maintain our national security, um, our national security interests, right? Is that, is, that, is that even necessary? So that's the big question, right? And that's valid because we could be counterproductive now as far as having, um, you know, X amount of troops in Germany, South Korea. Um, you know, a lot of this force posture is established based on what came out of the Cold War, right? But it's the way, I think, the way Trump has pulled out the uh, troops because he didn't get along with Angela on a couple of things. I think the way he did it is what's concerning. But then another thing, too, you have to look at the operational calculation here. We were in Germany for many reasons, right? Let's be honest here, to counter Russian aggression, right? Also to help support rapid deployments and not just to help support uh, NATO missions, but also to to support our mission in terms of Africa, right? Uh, AFRICOM uh, headquarters is actually out in uh, Germany right now because we're, we're significantly uh, downsizing in Germany. We don't know where to headquarter AFRICOM. It may have to go to Western Europe. Uh, some people are saying to Spain, uh, uh, United States uh, military wants in Africa, but the Africans are like, no, you cannot have it, especially in places like Djibouti. So it's just, you know, as far as us maintain our interests, we have to figure out what exactly is our force posture in the 21st century. And that is definitely a valid um, concern or open debate that we need to have right now because a post-Cold War um, um, you know, posture may not be a good fit. Now, going back to the piece with the Afghanistan and Iraq and, the, and these endless wars, I strongly believe the right and the left have a, con a consensus here, which is and these endless wars. We're right now going through war fatigue. Many of us don't even know that we're in war right now, and it's still in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, right? Americans have, tend to have an isolated mindset, but because I told you, priority is domestic issues, we tend to are out of touch with what we're doing overseas. But enemies endless wars, I think we do have an American census that we all want to end them. It's just how do we do it is where it's the, that's where the debate is. Like if you look in Afghanistan right now, Trump is trying to end the war in Afghanistan, right? He's trying to make sure we bring in the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan and the Haqqani Network and everybody named Mama, right, that are strategic actors 
and helping to bring a peace deal all together to create a peace deal so they could bring peace there. Well, is the big question is, is it working? Is that the right approach? That's something that we, that's where we need to debate about. Because at the end of the day, we do all want to get Afghanistan. It's just that how, right? Especially in also in places like Iraq. Iraq, we've been there for quite some time. You are seeing where Trump has continued the same strategy as, as um, Obama, where we're continuing to fight against ISIS using a coalition. We're even allowing the Iraqis to do their own fighting than us because we don't want to fight that no more. Take your own fight and do it, and we'll train you. We'll give you advice and assist, but you do it yourself, and that's what Trump has pretty much done like Obama wanted, uh, the TAA. But the fact is that it takes these, these type of uh, security forces like the Iraqis, like the Afghan security forces, they're so weak that it, it takes so much for them to do it by themselves independently. And that's where we're trying to go. And the big point is right now is does the American people have the appetite to wait for them to do it independently because they really lean on us so much to make sure that that threat is out, out of there, right? And then also, too, when you look at their history, the threat is ongoing. It's reoccurring. We can't always be vacuumed into their geopolitical issues. We have, to, we have to make sure that, hey, you have to do it on your own. We can't always be involved in the middle of everything. So there's a tug of war on arguments as far as how to deal with, with this uh, fragile region and, and what do we do moving forward, especially when it comes to our force posture. So I do agree that we need a downsize, and we are at there right now. You know, we don't have, like, hundreds and thousands of troops running around like we did under the Bush administration. Um, but it's the, the question is, how long? Is it going to be a residual force? Uh, what does the uh, SOFA look like? You know, we have to make sure we know those those uh, answers to those questions in order to be very analytical right now. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing what she was saying, and I think it's somewhat an imperial, um, imperialist posturing to say that, like, you know, that, that, that a country is not prepared to protect and defend itself. And certainly, you know, maybe perhaps Afghan forces aren't trained the ways in which American forces are because they aren't imperialist, imperial, inherently imperialist. So I also think that you're going into a culture that's um, predicated significantly on um, kind of disparate tribes, right? Kind of, you know, you peckled along the landscape. And we're expecting, you know, even the, the you have to understand even in the Middle East, a lot of these countries' borders weren't even determined inherently by themselves. They were determined by European colonial powers. So in my mind, is in order to undo a lot of that, is to let the, let the, the leaders rise that need to rise. We don't want a powerful Middle East. And we start, need to start having that honest discourse publicly as to why. Because most white people who support Trump, and I'll say this because I've had conversations with people like my father, a 30-year Army veteran who's a, an avid Trump supporter, is because he believes that we're in a war of cultures. And, uh, and he deeply believes that Western culture and Western civilization is going to be protected by Trump in ways that a democratic um, globalist kind of mindset will not necessarily protect. And but that's true. But you know what, though, your father is your father. Generally, your father is right, though. I don't know. He's right. But I no, no, no. Listen, I don't agree. Listen, I don't agree. No, 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 no. I don't agree with him. Listen, you, me, you, Richard. I agree with you. What's your point? I agree with your counterpoint. What I'm saying is that I don't disagree with your father and that the essence of what uh, the, the American military construct, the function of it is, it is a culture war. Do I agree with it? No. He's not right in regards to how he feels, but what's actually happening that it's a culture war, 
that's definitely true. But I will say one more other thing because we were talking, we, I think she alluded to um, China, but didn't say it. Or, you know, a lot of what we have to kind of pivot toward is, is obviously the rise of China, but the way in which, I mean, they're, they're an imperial project now as well. They're you know, turning into one and what they're doing in Africa, but they're doing it in a way that I think is in, incredibly smart and perhaps intuitive. And they've learned from like the failed imperial projects of, uh, uh, in the West is they're doing significant investment and, 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 and patriation. So they're essentially sending to Chinese to not only go live there, but build infrastructure in these places. The British did that to some degree, but Americans have mostly been focused on building out bases and military support apparatuses and not necessarily inve investing heavily in, um, in what communities are demanding overseas or like building infrastructures, building roads, building bridges, building like there hasn't been as much of a concerted kind of investment in that way. And the Chinese are doing that. And that's part of the reason I think they've been able to leverage um, so much to kind of build the kind of footprint that they have now. Imperialism too, to a certain extent, because it's overwhelming the continent as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I don't think it's a good thing, you know. Yeah. But I think it's more effective, you know. Yeah. It's smarter it's because it's using economics right. too than you know military aggression, like you're saying in a way, or military. Yeah. It's a soft it's a soft power versus a hard power, and I think we often in this country kind of overemphasize the use of hard, you know, hard power, you know what I mean? Right. Whereas like, yeah. Right. I think the one thing I wanted to mention that. too, what you said as far as the imperialism piece, another problem we do see, and I think, not, you know, Americans need to figure out a better way how to deal with this. When a conflict does break out in another country, a lot of countries come to us for help. Whether yeah. we screw them over historically, like in Iraq, they still come to us and say, can you help us, can you help us, right? And so, uh, what do we do at that point, right? That's human nature. Yeah. I mean, at some point, you're, I mean, you know, the, the analogy that comes off the street and like, and I think it's a, a dangerous one though, perhaps, but I'm like thinking of like, you can't give money to every homeless person that asks you for something. At some point, you need to be like, there's a governing body that needs to handle these issues. And we've created the UN. And, the, and, and, and if, if we don't want to provide power by being an active component of the, the, of the UN and helping uh, countries funnel um, itself and be able to resolve conflict in that way, then we actually are just playing a, a chess game, ultimately. And at the end of the day, of course, people, if, you, if you're the wealthy person on the block, if you're the ones that has the biggest military, I mean, of course, it's just human nature that countries would be, come and ask us for help. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to adjudicate them the way that we do, which we want to, we want to give them money under the slide. We want to buy, bypass the utilization of the UN. All that does is cripple this, this, this institution, which was birthed out of World War II, to avoid these kind of international conflicts, to, to, to avoid even these regional conflicts um, that America has inserted itself in as a, for an imperialist agenda. All right, so I'm going to read one more part of Trump's speech where he says, thank you. Days after taking office, we shocked the Washington establishment and withdrew from the last administration's job-killing Trans-Pacific Partnership. I then immediately approved the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines. Ended the unfair and very costly Paris Climate Accord. According to NPR, nearly every country in the world came together in Paris in 2015 to forge a new agreement on how to fight global warming and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But just a couple of years later, President Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the historic Paris Accord. That has been 
formally set into motion and the process will be complete in November, right after the election. Here's a thought. A 2019 study from Durham and Lancaster Universities in England shows the U.S. military is one of the largest climate polluters on the planet. If all U.S. military operations were looked at as a nation, the study says its fuel emissions alone would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Who wants to, who wants to tackle that part? I mean, I think this is where Republicans um, put, uh, shoot themselves in the foot. Because to me, it's, I mean, I get it to some degree the, uh, the you know, they're not wanting to overstep, um, you know, the growth of governance and in, in, in something like the Green New Deal. Um, but I think it, it, it requires, a, a one, I think, an ardent kind of almost disingenuous, um, you know, naivete, perhaps, or just gaslighting for you, for you not to recognize that global warming is real, right? Um, and then second, um, I think there... The, the fact that we don't want to update and you know make our military the most agile, the most um, the most I mean we have a large apparatus, but I'll say that when I was in Afghanistan, we were just still driving around shitty cars. I mean shitty uh, like you know you know twenty year old vehicles, things that were poorly maintained. You know just I mean you, and then you look at the German military, and I was just like yo like whatever they're doing, they're doing a little bit more effectively. I mean a lot. I mean I think America just loves to swing a big dick, if, if you know, for lack of better phrase, you know, like they just want to, you know, uh, have the biggest, baddest thing. And most of the time, it's not the most efficient. So I think, it's, I mean, it's a valid critique to say the military is, is, is a heavy emitter. And that's certainly something that I think we should work toward addressing. Um, and it's unfortunate that we pulled out the, Claret, the Paris Climate Agreement. I'm going to let Asha speak to that. Um, I don't know as much about the Paris Accord to know whether or not that's something we should, or if there are specific things that motivated um, not want to be part of it. I do know that part of what Trump's issue has been was that um, America was paying an unfair share um, of the expenditures relative to particular agreements, whether it was NAFTA, whether it was um, uh, even the financing of the United Nations, and perhaps that was a consideration in the execution of the Paris Climate Accord. Now, mind you, you know, it's, it's somewhat of a socialist kind of perspective to say that you have more money, so therefore you should invest more. But, um, you know, I think that's, you know, equal investment, it, it, there's something to be said about an equal, not only just an equal investment, but an equal, um, an, an equal execution should, should, should and, and if, if there's not, if he believes that there wasn't an effective way to measure success um, relative to, to the Paris Climate Accord, then, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I'll let Asha speak to that. I, I don't want to comment specifically. I'll comment on the emissions issue, but I think Paris Climate Accord not something I'm as well versed on. Asha? Yeah, I, I think this is, comes along with uh, Trump's strategic interests to reverse everything that uh, almost everything Obama started. Um, Obama, of course, uh, we were brought into Paris Accord through his executive um, order because it was not going to pass uh, in the House and Senate during that time. Um, but I will tell you that it was it's definitely a global embarrassment. Uh, it's not a binding uh, piece of uh, global legislation, but it is a good starting point because our, our earth is on fire right now in many ways when it comes to climate changes in terms of the temperature, the hurricane issues. I mean, we have to bring 
the world together. Now, it's historically, too, it's historic, excuse me, because of the fact that it took a while, especially big, um, uh, um, major countries like United States, China, and Russia to come in and talk about this. Meanwhile, you have little islands like, like the Philippines and other countries uh, where the sea level is coming up, and many of these people are dealing with these issues involving the sea level issue, and, and it's making them leave or move to other parts of the world because they can't live where they are. And it's very upsetting. So they're trying to work with uh, countries like the United States and uh, China and Russia, uh, who are emitting a lot of carbon um, issues um, to, to address this. So I think it was a great timing in terms of negotiations, working together, coming all together. But it was a global embarrassment when we pulled out. And why was that? Not only that you're showing that, that you're disregarding diplomacy, but also for the fact that two things that happened. When we pulled out, two countries that were not part of the, the Paris Accord went right in, that was Nicaragua and Syria. Nicaragua was not in for a minor reason. I, I forgot what it was, but Syria was not in because they are distracted with their own little civil war going on, right? So you had those, so when we pulled out, those two countries jumped in. So then we ended up isolating ourselves. And then when you saw it locally, we had, uh, a lot of cities like LA and I think um, I think uh, United, I mean New York City and other little um, I mean, cities in in the United States joined the Paris Accord. So you know, and I think even corporations joined it. So I mean, there you know, there's um, some involvement yeah, in the United States yeah. not part of the Paris Accord. So it's not necessarily binding, but it's a good start as far as talking about how can we address this moving forward. And he just slapped it right in the face as far as pulling out. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about this, uh, the populism in the military, Asha. Like, what is that? That's something that you study. Populism um, became a really, um, became an interest for me because of the fact that I started to see the rise of it, especially when under the, uh, you know, when it comes along with the Trump administration. And what I wanted to do is kind of study in the national security military realm to see where exactly people fit when it comes to uh, populism. Now, most people don't know what these isms are. Socialism, explain populism. Yeah, so explain what populism is for us so we all understand them and bring, bring it into your, your, your study. It's not an ideology, but it's a movement that uh, focuses on uh, more with uh, nationalism, right? Uh, more with, um, most people would say, uh, nationalism where you're rejecting the world and you're prioritizing your own domestic issues but more in a selfish way it's not where we're bringing everybody in a whole we're only supporting a certain subgroup within the domestic realm of why we need to be prioritized over others because we're not happy economically and socially it's also a rejection to social change in many ways, right? So you saw that under the Trump administration, most people say Trump was voted based on the fact that many people were not happy that there was a huge social change going on in this country, especially with all oh, black and brown people are going to be the majority. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, different type of characteristics and I was definitely focusing on, you know, the travel ban issue, uh, the issue involving the border security. How do veterans feel about that? How do national security professionals feel about it? Do they support it? Mexicans they fucking our blue-eyed blonde daughters, all that other shit. And also looked at, uh, you know, uh, Trump going after international organizations like NATO. Uh, do Americans, are Americans uh, comfortable with that? You know, or do you support that the uh, the 2% uh, burden sharing issue, right? Do you uh, uh, accept it? Do you reject it? Uh, do you uh, support Trump 
um, reducing the budget when it comes to the United Nations. I mean, just looking at the, you know, you may not feel that you're a populist, but you may support some of the stuff that he does uh, believe in. So we, what we did with our surveys, we, I think both of you guys participated, we asked you a different set of questions. Do you believe, do you support some of these um, policies that he supports? Because it is a form of um, populism. Now populism, again, it's not an ideology, it's a social movement. Uh, that, um, you know, definitely came out historically from the European times, but for the most part, it is a rise in, in the American um, political system uh, and is being fueled by, uh, by Trump. And we're going to see for 2020, is it going to survive? Now, my, my uh, concern is that does it, is it within the veterans and national security realm? Um, and for the most part, based on my studies, I see that most people do reject the principles of populism. Uh, they do not support necessarily uh, populism, but when you start to get out to talk to some of those vets and national security uh, professionals out in the, like the Midwest and, and the South, you do see more features or more support of some of these populist policies. So uh, we'll see moving forward, but I know that um, when it comes to populism, socialism, uh, there are some, some common features you have there and then they also uh, uh, they do not agree in many ways. All right, so in the military, how does, this, how does populism impact military? Because when you have a commander-in-chief that embraces populism, like the travel ban issue. Now, the travel ban issue, I'll give you one example. That was a big hit for the military because when you look at our, our military operations, we lean on, on people like, uh, um, you know, um, linguists, right? To help those that help us with as our translators over in uh, these different missions. But if you have a travel ban where they're not allowed to come to the United States, and, and they have a certain Im immigration status, that impacts them. So when it comes to our service members, our vets, many of them did not support what the president was trying to do. Also, when you look at the border security issue too, uh, there, were, um, many, there were some vets that did not agree on the fact that what was going on there in terms of the border, using uh, DOD uh, money to build up uh, the number of troops along the border, and it should have been more driven by DH DHS and um, the border, uh, border agents, and also how they were pretty much antagonizing the immigrants that were coming in. No one wants to have open borders, but we do We do want to have security along the borders, but we don't want to do what we're doing, with, especially when it comes to the border uh, building a wall. That doesn't make any sense. So we've asked our participants, do you believe in building the wall? Many of them said no. You know, so, you know, it's, it's uh, pretty interesting to watch, but uh, again, a lot of people don't know what these isms mean, but do they support the policies, especially when it comes to the commander in chief that's pushing it? Understood. So listen, I got one more question for y'all before we go. So, and we're going to talk about um, this defunding the police movement, right? So we all know that activists, particularly in the wake of George Floyd's murder, and I say murder, I know that he was killed, but in my personal opinion, I look at these as state-sanctioned murders. That's the way I see it, right? Just to be perfectly clear. Um, but the way, when I think about policing and I think about defunding the police, as somebody who covers politics and interview politicians all the time, a lot of politicians I speak to have a problem with the language. I personally don't, but... They say that the language, when you say defund the police for the average American who votes, they're thinking, oh, you're taking away an entity that protects me, 
when I need to call them when someone's breaking into my house, right? So like, that's the way the average person thinks about it. And so while many of them will think that we should allocate more money to social services, they don't agree with the language of defunding the police. That's a, you know, that's a different conversation about language. But one of the things that I personally believe in is the money, there's a lot of money that's put into local police departments, but the big bucks is in the fucking Pentagon. I mean, the Pentagon, and y'all know this better than me. I know this because I look at budgets. Like, the administrative waste that goes on at the Pentagon goes into the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And y'all both know that. And so, recently there was an amendment to the annual defense budget where Senator uh, Bernie Sanders and Representative Barbara Lee, uh, they were the two main people in Congress calling for a 10% cut uh, in the budget for the Department of Defense. Now, it was eventually defeated, but here's the thing. 93 House members and 23 senators voted for the cut, according to the nation. That's a notable number. 93 House members and 23 senators voted for the cut. And so Bernie Sanders has been very open about this. Congresswoman Lee has been open about this. And their thing is, since our budget is larger than anywhere from seven to the 10 next largest nations on earth, a 10% budget is not going to hurt U.S. security. I just want to get your thoughts on this. So, Richard, uh, what, what's your take? I think if we're going to maintain the kind of global presence that we do and to the extent that we do, um, you know, it's difficult to then think about um, the application of a budget cut. Right. Um, and then obviously, I think there is something to be said about once you give somebody something, it's very hard to send this say you want to give them less. I mean, America's like that with social social welfare as, as, as well. Like you can't give me something and then want to take it back. So, I mean, I do think it's going to take a, lo a, a long-winded um, and strategic um, political fight to start to kind of scale back our nation's military. I think it's overinflated. Um, I think there's a, it's bigger than it needs to be. But it's, you know, military-industrial complex is not strictly, um, a, a, you know, a militaristic or, you know, specifically predicated on war, um, even though that's, you know, it's a significant utility. It's also a mechanism um, to, in some respect, respects, placate the poor because a lot of the poor then find jobs and opportunity in this in this complex, right? Even if that complex um, happens to be an ineffective one, um, and I don't think we have an honest conversation about that as a country. Um, but those are my thoughts on a, a budget a budget reduction. So let me add this to you before before Asher gets into it. I want I want to say something before Asher gets into it. So i have been a big proponent of cutting back our nuclear weapons arsenal right and so in the re and, and i you know and so and i want to get into this your point about the poor so again so many black folks we get our upward mobility through the military both my parents served right my mother was combat and this is a very personal issue for me i think one of the reasons why i don't have the best relationship with my mother is because she has ptsd from the military she served in iraq and she and there are things you know it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say because it's her story but what i will say is that as a black woman in the military in iraq i can definitely say the reason why 
I would say the biggest one of the big, like the biggest reason why we have challenges is because of the trauma that she dealt with in the military based on how she was treated. One day when she wants to, and it's her choice, she will tell that story. So when you talk about placating the poor, absolutely, because my mother looked at that as a way for her to advance in her social class. So Richard, you're right on the money in that regard because my mother came from a poor background, just like my father. There's a lack of ingenuity around creating other economic opportunities for people, right? And so when the military has to be one of the central drivers, and I mean, black people are overrepresented in the military um, by way of numbers. They're overrepresented also on the enlisted side and lack of opportunity and advancement and all and what have you. You can get into all that granularity. And also Black Veterans Project would you know, be privileged to, to be able to document your mother's story we are building out an archive of stories but um you know for for to your point i mean i i i agree completely and i think that it there's there's also something to be said about the fact that you have fledgling towns and a, and a kind of a slow unwinding after the deindustrialization has happened and the military being used as an apparatus to to kind of placate the lower classes and and, and provide just a little bit of a carrot Right, you have, and you don't make a lot of money in the military. You make twenty something thousand dollars. They give you less than minimum wage half the time, and you're you're given healthcare, basic dilapidating housing. To be honest, I mean it's molded, and a lot of it's not well maintained. There are some bases that are better taken care of than others. I will say that I I was uh, even our aid, our medical aid station was banned by the German government for asbestos, and we were treating medical patients in there for a whole year before we went to Afghanistan. So, you know, and that's just one example, right? So, I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, we don't have often honest conversations about how class informs the way in which our military operates and the ways in which it exploits citizens, right? And I think having a smaller, more elite military um, and making sure that equal opportunity is at its core and that it's held to a standard, because I think one, one of the things that your mother experienced could, if she had a mechanism to find redress, for some of the traumas that she experienced, whether it was discrimination, sexism, and what have you, but having basic worker protections, with the fact that you have to forfeit your civil rights as a citizen and the protections afforded under Title VII, um, saying that you don't have to necessarily, you don't have to, you have protections, you, you can sue an employer. You, you can't sue the military. And then the environment is, is kind of is, is reinforcing itself. And the ways in which the command structure operates, the fact that when you do, when you are racially aggrieved, when you're sexually aggrieved, you have to go to your unit commander to find redress or your direct command to find redress. And so long, if they don't think it's a priority, when they have to come, they have to protect their own their own interests because if some things go off the, the ladder, it looks like a failure of leadership on their part. We don't have enough honest conversations about how that apparatus is not only archaic and hasn't been updated for decades, if not centuries now, um, but it's ineffective. The VA often fails is because um, it's mostly staffed by non-vets, which is nonsensical, right? Like, then you have a whole uh, a mental health apparatus with, with, with a lack of understanding based off experience, right? Vets helping vets is how it should be because it's a very unique experience. And, and for, like I said, when you are other than the military, you have to adapt to a different identity in order to survive. And we're hopefully pushing it forward. And certainly the military has made progress in some regard. It's not all an, an indictment. But it's certainly we need to keep pushing forward because when you are other, you have to adapt um, to this aggressive, sometimes hostile environment in order to move forward in your career. And especially if you're there for economic opportunity and it's not like you can just quit your job and you don't have protections, right? And it's very lower enlisted, you are even less protected in, in many ways. It, it, it's, it's something that I think needs to be brought to the public square. But, but because we have a diminishing kind of military in the sense of less 
um, less percentage of, our, of, of Americans actually serve than historically have served. Um, there's, a, there's a growing kind of divide or chasm rather between civilians and military members. So it's just experience. That's why to your Asha's point about no one knowing that we're still at war. People are just not only just disinvested, there's less and less and less connection to that apparatus for them, even though it has wide yielding repercussions that, that, that speak to the fact that they might not have food on the table, right? So I, I'm happy to talk to your mom at, at any point. One of the things that I feel like I bring to this conversation, why I invited both of you on to talk, because Asha, you are you you were running for Congress, you know, and Richard, I know your experience is uh, I am someone. I study the consequences of imperialism, what it means, and so. I believe in cutting the 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 um the our nuclear silos right our minuteman three nuclear weapons uh systems and i know this because we've there's never been a nuclear war there's been a nuclear attack and i know you know these missiles with the with the warheads on them there are hundreds of millions of dollars for one um and when I talk, and the reason being is that it doesn't take 14,000 nuclear weapons, which is roughly, according to public figures, the number of nuclear weapons that exist around the world. It doesn't take that many nuclear weapons to destroy the world. And anybody who reads understands this, right? And so Russia and America, we hold most of the nuclear weapons arsenal, 90% of it. And I'm pretty sure you both are aware of a study that showed that if there was a regional war between Pakistan and India, that it would literally be the beginning of the nuclear winter, you know, a, a nuclear winter. You both know this. And they have roughly 300 nuclear we weapons between them. Roughly 300. Okay, we're not even talking about thousands. You're talking about 300. And it's not something that's immediate. And it'll basically be something that starts over a 25, 50-year period where the world, you, you know, we have this weapon where, where, where uh, disproportionately impact the environment, right? So... My call for cutting off the, you know, the ground portion of the triad is the idea that, you know, if we have some, you know, if we have our sub, our, our sea-based nuclear weapons and, you know, the air-based nuclear weapons, if you want to create a nuclear posture, that's the way to do it. But that's another conversation. But I want to get into this 10%. My whole point of saying this is that because america is so much bigger and has such a mightier military posture than the rest of the world is 10 percent really going to hurt our national security asha all right yes uh well i'll tell you this you can find money that is wasted there's waste in the pentagon you can find it it's just where right if you look at uh, why Kamala didn't sign off on uh, the end, why she uh, went forward with the NDA. She says, the reason why I did that is not because I'm saying we should not reduce the budget. Uh, I'm saying because we need to be more strategic with it. And I think we do need to be more strategic with it as well. Um, because I, I do believe there is waste. And, and I think also, this is why one reason why I support ending these endless wars. If you look at since 9-11, OCO, which is Overseas Contingency Operations, that pot of money has quadrupled, right? Why? It's because based on the commander-in-chief's discretion, 
he can be involved in so many different military conflicts around the world without getting uh, consent from the Senate and the House. That's the justification why we're in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, because we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan for so long, our, our OCO money and other, other missions too as well, our OCO money has tripled, quadrupled. It bubbled so much to the point that why, this is why I would have that conversation. Why is our budget so big, especially around roughly around $740 billion? This is why we have to get to the point of how do we end these endless wars so they don't become so damn expensive. So there is ways we can find it. It's just we have to be committed to it, of getting rid of it and be very strategic about it. Another thing, too, we have these military construction projects that are not finished. And that is another thing, too, that we need to resolve and hurry up and stop wasting so much money on that as well. Especially we're not going to be permanently staying in certain places around the world and we're just building camps and not military installations where we're not, the intent is not to have a permanent uh, presence there then we should just cut down some of those uh, military co uh, construction projects. But the, the, another issue too, and this is why a lot of House uh, dense uh, non-progressives, I would say, voted for is because we had this issue, going back to Richard saying, where you have people that are in districts that have local economies that, that are not diversified. If you ask everybody, where do you work at? Most people would say, I'm a teacher, or I, I signed up for the military, or I work at some plant, that's it. And then, and, if you, and then another thing too, they may say, oh, I help build uh, capabilities like F-35s, S-400s, whatever, right? Capabilities for the, for, the, um, for the US military. That's where that foreign military sales issue comes in. And that is their job, right? So then all, on top of that, they uh, lobby with their local, um, their local representatives, making sure that you support our NDA, you support making sure that you are for us to have this company that helps build these bombs, whatever, planes, uh, 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 F-35s, air, air assets, all that, so we can have a job. So you have this intersection between, oh, we want a job, and on top of that, we want to make sure that we look strong around the world. And so I, everybody has to ask ourselves, well, what's the alternative? When it comes to that, if we want to get rid of, of you know, these, these different plants or whatever or companies that are helping to build these different capabilities and we don't really need it, what is the alternative to give those people those jobs? And that's where we have to definitely debate about. And Richard kind of talked about that somewhat. Um, but my, issue, my issue is moving forward where I think that you're not going to see a significant uh, reduction is because we're now starting to get out of counterterrorism work and more into great power competition. And I'm not saying we should be increasing our budget moving forward because we want to keep up with Russia and China, but I do believe there's a silent majority that in order to do so, we have to make sure we have a big budget. And I, look, we can have those arguments saying, hey, we should be smart about this. We can spend less in order to keep up with Russia and China, uh, but you know, we got to make sure that that that's in place and that's reflected in the NDAA. But again, uh, I think when we start to get into this Russia and China great power competition era, especially among the Republicans, you're not going to see where there's going to be a lot of thirst of reducing the budget. Now, there is this argument where moving forward on an annual basis, maybe we need to flatten the curve. Flatten the curve means not every year we should always increase our budget. We should just try to flatten it. Keep it at, cap it out at like what, 720, $720 billion. I don't know. But I think the flattening curve is a, a good starting point because 
what um, centrists or Republicans or whatever are seeing right now, there's a thirst, like you said, there's 92 uh, um, progressive uh, Dems that want to uh, reduce the budget and it's probably just gonna increase. Even in my district, I know that the person that won, he's gonna most likely vote against the NDA if it keeps going up, as well as uh, uh, you know Jamal Bowman, they're not gonna be for the increase in the NDA, right? So, so you know, there's a thirst for it and I think we're gonna see that moving forward, especially if the Democrats get that, the majority in the Senate and in the House or maintain the, the majority in the House. So my final thing, cause I know we, we're, gonna, we're gonna close out in uh, less than a minute each. I want to ask y'all this. What does it look like for America to exert, or let me rephrase it. What does America's presence in the world look like where we are not leading with our military might, where we are continuing to not only call for, let's say, a 20% cut, but a 10% cut, but let's say 20% cut, because the thinking behind it is the reason why America is powerful is because it has a military that can fight abroad and no wars are fought here. But what does it look like in which a world looks like in which America does not have to um, basis foreign policy or its military ideology on the threat that we are going to be under attack. What what does that look like? Could we ever get to that point? I would say this. If you want to have that type of world, you have to invest in your State Department. Our State Department is right now skeleton, right? There's no, it's 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 just terrible right now. There's, there's so many diplomats that have dropped out and uh, our representation abroad is, is a horrendous, right? I know a lot of people that have mentioned, where are the Americans when they go to, you know, try to reach out to people at the embassies? But when you are re significantly reducing your diplomats, you're, you're weakening that foreign policy tool to get things done using diplomacy instead of using defense. So we have to continue, instead of weakening, we have to strengthen our diplomacy. So when it comes to resolving global conflicts, or trying to reach a, a you know a fair economic deal, we can all do that in diplomacy. We don't have to do that through through uh, the defense. The defense should be treated as a last resort. So, uh, but the other part that we have to acknowledge here, the United States benefits right in their own eyes by in order to maintain their strategic alliances, they have to constantly sell all these foreign military cells to their to their strategic alliances, and then they feel. If we don't, they're gonna buy it from the Russians. They're gonna buy it from the Chinese. And then they're gonna be, uh, lean more towards them and not us. So, you know, and we saw it, we see that with, with countries like India and uh, a couple of couple of our partners in NATO, where they're actually buying Russian uh, assets or, or uh, capabilities. So, so what is the alternative in that too as well, right? And do we need to stay in that game? And there's a lot of money behind it as well. So. We have to figure that's out- That's capitalism. That's, that's capitalism. That's military, but it's also, that's a larger conversation about capitalism. And, and, and to me, that's, that is capitalism, but more importantly, it's a moral question. And yeah, that's a good point, Ash. I appreciate you bringing it up. But I want to ask Richard about that. It's mutually reinforcing because uh, ultimately, you know, we've created the model and now we're seeing that model kind of um, reverberate. 
right? And countries are trying to replicate what they've seen, you know, even by way of democracy. Democracies can look different, but the kinds of democracies that we're trying to institute is, aren't necessarily culturally adaptive. Um, they're, they're certainly um, not regionally adaptive. Um, and it's because Americans don't generally know always, and they don't listen often because they're, they're oftentimes people in academia, people who, um, you know, come from these countries that can inform policy, but those, they're largely locked out of the room because it's generally white men who have no cultural competency making these decisions. And don't give a fuck. They don't give a fuck. But I mean, certainly relative to what Asha is saying, it's, it, you know, you're talking about massive tropes of money. You're talking about like power in a way that you know, I think it's far beyond the layman's understanding because there is a there is a political elite, there is a there is a there is a class elite in this country that's heavily invested in the maintenance of certain industrial complexes and the military industrial complex being one. Um, and this idea that they have to play into a game um, uh, 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 well stems from the Cold War of having to kind of um, placate Russia by you know um, making sure that they're supplying most of these military supplies instead of the idea perhaps that they should be a force for good in the world in a way of they, they, that, they, that they can you know, structure regional investment in a way that binds um, countries to them in, 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 in greater ways. And also hopefully um, uh, encourages them not to get into regional conflict because most of these regional conflicts are stemmed in part from um, a, a, a steep need and desire for resources that we don't often discuss. And so, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with what Asha is saying, that we need to bolster a foreign policy presence that is, um, that is the beacon of the world. And we've done that in some ways, um, but it was, has always been kind of coupled by, by, you know, by the vision, um, an alternative vision that's driven mostly by uh, wealth accumulation that's coming from the right, right? Militarism. That's also coming from the left. There are the great um, uh, majority um, in the left, I believe, that, that don't understand that the ways in which they see the world through the, the eyes of globalism and what have you necessitates an apparatus that they then say, oh, well, they don't like, right? But, you know, they want, they want globalism, right? So, and the ways in which that has to be act effectively carried out is ultimately, you know, re reliant on a strong military, unfortunately. Um, and I mean, I honestly think the last part that I'll say is that there needs to be a significant reinvestment in the American people and um, domestically. And I think that to me, you know, is a showing of, of a model that we can, we can encourage the world to replicate, right? Um, and so all those things taken collectively, I think is a, is a stronger vision, you know, for, for the country. Um, and I think will we'll, we'll, we'll serve us well. That isn't to say that we might not experience blowback from a hundred years of failed foreign policy. But we have to think about how, we have to anticipate what that blowback might be and try to counter it effectively. Um, but we have to have a different vision and it has to be informed by a different kind of light and a different kind of moral compass. So listen, Richard, Asha, thank you so much for joining Black Diplomats. This has been a really great, pretty lively conversation. And so y'all's experience has, you know, the way that you all, approach the conversation is unique and we need to hear more from you all and so I'm, I'm i'm really thankful that you gave us your time today thank you so much thank you so much thank you thank and you're you. safe in the ukraine you're probably safer there than we when than we are here under a trump re-election so um we appreciate the opportunity certainly and we'd love I, I know i'd love to be on again thanks for tuning in to black diplomats we especially want to shout out our patrons if you like this episode, please become a patron at the link in the episode notes.
Also, rate and subscribe to Black Diplomats on your favorite podcast platform. The intro and outro music is brought to you by my fellow Detroiter, Tall Black Guy. <laughs>